Holy Father, we are here to be Your people. To grow and to understand and to learn. To move together in Your Spirit. To reach out, literally, Lord, and touch that which is supernatural. Because we all here know that in our natural selves, we mess it up. We need You, Jesus. And so, will You teach us now and and give us new insight fresh revelation of the revelation, the only one that matters. Speak with clarity and teach us all. In the name of Jesus, we pray, Father. Amen. All right, one more time. Romans chapter 16. I was so tempted to break this into one more Sunday morning teaching, but I couldn't stop. I was too excited. So we're just going to finish it up tonight. And we're going to pick it up in verse 17. Before we do, isn't it interesting, as, as we're coming now to the end of this fantastic, wonderful, amazing letter. And I don't know about you, but for me it has been a thrill to go through it, verse by verse, and really process what all Paul was saying and how he lays it out. It's, it's stunning. Definitely inspired. But it's almost as if Paul can't let the ink dry. You can imagine he's there in the room with Tertius. Remember, Tertius is the, is the scribe. And Paul's dictating. And, and I can just imagine Paul walking back and forth there with Tertius. And Tertius has the scrolls down and he's pen and ink and he's jotting these things down and writing and trying to follow Paul. And, and Paul says something and says, no, wait a minute, Mark, scratch that out. Okay, scratch that out. And Okay, here, here's what we want to say. And i got to believe that Paul was praying the whole way through the writing of this. Lord, is that what you want me to say? Lord, help me to, help me to formulate this in a way that is understandable and clear. Okay, and he would speak some more and Tertius would write some more. And we come down now to the end of it. And Paul skips over, misses at least five rock-solid conclusions to this letter. It's like me on a Sunday morning. I mean, he just keeps going and going, you know? You could have ended there. That was a great place to land the plane. But no, we go back for one more time around. Five times in this letter. Look at chapter 15, verse 33. He says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And you're ready to close the Bible. You go, wait, there's one more chapter. So Paul realizes, no, no, no. We, now we got to do the greetings. And so he begins to greet. We went through all of those on Sunday morning. 21 salutations to 27 people. Greeting this person and that person, and then calling upon them as he's doing so to greet one another with a holy kiss. To greet each other with a warm embrace. You've got to be able to greet a brother and a sister with a warm embrace. This is, this is the word of the Spirit to the church. And he goes all the way through that and then comes down here to verse 16 and says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Excellent. Great place to end. But there's more. In fact, there are three more times after these two that we feel like it's concluding, but then Paul continues on. And I just feel the affection of Paul for the church in Rome. And I feel the intensity of Paul to be sure he doesn't leave out one iota of what the Spirit wants to say. I think that's really probably more than anything else. He is functioning by the urgings and the nudgings of a Holy Ghost writer who is speaking these things. Paul listens and speaks and listens and speaks while Tertius writes. Have we covered it all, Lord? Is there anything I've forgotten or any words that you, Spirit of the living God, want to speak to this people? 
And so as we come now to the end of all these warm-hearted salutations, there is something else. In fact, a couple of major things the Spirit wants to make sure we do not miss. And the first of these two, after the warm salutations, is a warning of separation. Beginning in verse 17, we have a two-verse warning of separation. Paul flies the red flag of caution. You see, within all the warm embrace of a church fellowship, there must also be discernment. And the red flag is simply this. He is now going to advise the saints who he has just called upon to love one another. He's going to advise them to stand apart from anyone who stands apart from the truth. Embrace one another, love one another, accept someone who rejects the sanctifying work of the Word of God. Listen to Paul's words, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. And this is as serious as it gets in a church body. This is a place I can confess to you as a pastor I never want to go. I do not like to turn against anybody. When you're called to preach the gospel of grace, the last thing you want to do is be a judge. The last thing you want to do is cut somebody off. But the Spirit here clearly delineates the boundary line of fellowship. This is hard teaching because it follows Romans 14 and 15. Go back and look. Romans 14, verse 1. Where the Apostle has just written, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. Sometimes it's easier to boot the one weak in faith right out the door. But he says, accept this one. And then down in verse 10. You, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Hey, we're all equal before the throne of God. Before the cross of Jesus. He says, it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Man, love each other. Accept each other. Put up with one another because you're all messed up. We all struggle, right? We can all be either, as we talked about, the weaker brother or the stronger brother, really depending on the time of day. Early in the morning before I've had my tea, forget it. Be accepting of one another. And then in chapter 15, verse 1, Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Proof of a strong follower of Jesus. They got massive patience with weakness. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. And it goes on, we studied this, looked at it, down in verse 7, accept one another as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And then even right before verse 17, in verse 16 of chapter 16, listen again, greet one another. This is in the command form. Greet, Greet is imperative. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. That's the background. We're leading all into this. We see these warm greetings. We're in this warm, fuzzy place of acceptance. And all of a sudden, Paul has to go dark. But he answers for us one of the most difficult questions asked in the entire church age. 
across 2,000 years. Is there ever a time when a person must be cut off? When disfellowship, or if you're Catholic, excommunication, must take place. And he uses a word here in verse 17, several words I'm going to pull out and give you, but the first one that stands out is a word that I really believe more than anyone else is written to leaders. Shepherds, elders, pastors. And it is the word scopeo. Keep your eye on them. Keep your eye on them. Scopeo. It means literally to scope out. That's an easy one to remember. Scopeo. Scope out. Pay attention to. It even can be translated. In fact, I think the King James translates it, mark them. This is the person that in, in a position of caring for a fellowship, that as they come in the door, if you are aware of possible dangers, you have a check in your spirit. You keep an eye on things. You don't stop them at the door, but you keep an eye on this type of person. Shepherds should never be caught off guard when the flock is in danger. But always alert, always aware, always eyes wide open. It doesn't mean, and please remember this, it does not mean that leaders in any church are omniscient. You never visited me while I was in the hospital. Nobody knew you were in the hospital. You didn't come to me when I was going through this problem or that problem. Did you call us? Did you ask? And sometimes that'll happen. People just kind of assume you just know everything. You don't. I know very little. Ask my family. I forget things so easily. I need to be drawn into it. So it's not about omniscience. It's about discernment. It's about wisdom. It's about awareness. Shepherds should never be paranoid, but prudent. Never suspicious, but always abounding in sober judgment. So aware if there's a threat to the body, to mark it, to keep an eye on it. In fact, Paul writes to Titus and he describes a shepherd saying that they are people who are loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Shepherds are to keep an eye on things. And I think that does apply to the whole body, although we are not to walk paranoid. But we do keep an eye on things. If you hear something that's strange doctrinally coming out of someone's mouth, mark it. Be aware of it. Don't judge, don't cast out, but just think... I'm going to have to look that up a little bit. I'm going to spend some time in the Word. I'm going to have to pray about that one. And mark it. Be aware of it. We are not to be foolish and blind. Now Paul gives two crystal clear reasons for separation. That is to isolate or to cut someone off. And there is a time when that is necessary. And the two reasons are this. Number one, dissensions. Number two, hindrances. Those who cause dissensions and those who cause hindrances. But he is very specific with the two words. Note this, he also uses the definite article. You wouldn't see this in the English. But he says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause the dissensions and the hindrances contrary to the teaching. In using the definite article, what a Greek student or scholar would recognize is that these are known offenses. These are things already in the church that are known of as the dissensions. Keep an eye on them. 
Those things that you know have caused dissension in other places, keep an eye out for them. The hindrances, that is, the false teachings, the lies, the doctrine that's out there, keep an eye that it does not make its way into a place where the truth is being taught. And what he says with dissensions, two things to note. Number one, disengage from the divider. Disengage from the divider. You keep an eye out for them. When you recognize them, you turn away from them. You literally disengage. Dissensions, the divider. It's dikostasia, is the Greek word, and it is intentional division. It's not someone who accidentally causes a, a problem and is repentant and sorrowful and, I, man, I, I didn't realize what I was doing and I didn't mean to cause people to divide over this. I apologize. No, this is the person who's doing it intentionally. This is sedition. Someone who has a position or a place or an agenda in a church fellowship and they seek to divide. Now, watch again. Remember the process. You mark first that there's a potential problem. But then when the problem increases and you see that it is a legitimate threat to the unity of the body of Christ, you turn away. You disengage from the divider, from that person who causes sedition within a fellowship. And by the way, that word for sedition or division is the same word, dissensions, that Paul uses in the deeds of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5.19, he says, The deeds of the flesh are evident immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions. There's the word, factions. So it's used in concert with disputes and factions and strife and jealousy. It comes from that same place spiritually. And in Galatians 5.21, Paul says it's those who practice such things who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you disengage from the divisive person, you are only disengaging from the person God already says will not enter my kingdom. Why not, Lord? Because my kingdom is about unity. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we practice that in the church. Titus chapter 3 verse 10 goes so far as to say, Paul writes, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. The word is hereticos, where we get heretic. But it's someone who divides by false teaching. Knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. That's serious business. You see why I didn't want to talk about this on Sunday morning. Proverbs 6.19 In this proverb, God gives a list of seven things that he hates. Six things, actually, that he hates. Seven that are abhorrent to him. Which is a Hebrew way of saying number seven is the worst. And number seven is one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates that. It is the worst of the worst, according to God. Someone who goes around tearing it up, God has no patience. So you disengage from the divider. Second, you separate from the scandalous. Turn away from those who cause dissensions and hindrances. The word is scandalon. We've seen that word before. It's also translated a stumbling block. But it is very specific. It's not just scandalon by itself. It's specifically, note this, hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. In other words, it is a scandalon. It's those who scandalize God's holy word. Turn away from them. Separate yourself from them. Rick, do you 
walk in fellowship with everybody who claims to be a Christian? No, I don't. That's too broad a category. Because there are those who claim to be Christians who are preaching heresy. Mormonism is heresy and they claim to be Christians. I do not accept Mormonism as a viable option of following Jesus because the Jesus of Mormonism isn't even the same Jesus. And the teachings of Mormonism... Am I rude and offensive to a Mormon? No, I would love them, hoping to have an opportunity to teach the truth. But I do not walk in fellowship embracing my Mormon brothers and my this brother, Jehovah's Witness brothers and my that brothers. No, there is a dividing line. And that dividing line is very clear. You separate from those who scandalize the Word of God. What does God's Word teach? That's where we are. That's what I teach. That's what I believe. And if that means that I have to separate, and in this world, trust me, the closer we get to the return of Jesus, the more those who follow the Word will be separated from the rest of society. We don't even have to separate ourselves. We're already being separated. But you stand on the Word of God. There is a doctrinal divide. And it is where the truth is being trampled. Biblical truth, if it's being trampled, turn away. Don't accept it. The word for turn away is eklino. It means to shun or avoid. The translators also use the word eschew, but I never use that word, except when I'm looking under the bed and can't find them. To shun or avoid. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This book is not a bunch of humans who made up stuff. It is men spoke by the Word of God, the will of God, the intentions of the Spirit of God. Which is why this book is so amazing and fits together so intricately. intricately. (laughs) External and internal evidence for the Word of God is astoundingly true. Because it's His Word. And it was not up to men to write. And so we can be confident in the Bible, confident in God's Word to steer us along this path. Sound doctrine is simply that which the Bible teaches. It's not my interpretation of it. It's not someone else's idea of what it might mean. What this, how we could allegorize this or metaphorize this. No. What does it say? What does it say? And my friends, you and I know, we and everyone on the planet are smart enough if we will just read it as written to understand what it says. Well, so, so why are there so many denominations? Because people don't read it for what it says. They read it for how they can squeeze it into their tradition. Well, this is what I've always known. Therefore, I've got to make the Bible fit what I've always known. I've heard someone describe the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. Revelation 11 describes two men who will be standing in Jerusalem, prophesying, doing amazing things. I think it's Moses and Elijah, but that's just me. And they will be doing this during the time of tribulation. I know someone who interprets that, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It doesn't work. But their tradition does not allow for a coming tribulation, though the Bible prophesies that it will come. And so they take it and squeeze it into their tradition to mean the two witnesses are, ah, oh, it's got to be the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. That's the two witnesses. It doesn't work. You don't change it to fit what you want it to say. You take it at face value. Read the Word. What does it tell us? It is His Word, and it's not ours to bend. 
And it's not ours to tweak and it's not ours to refashion to our own agendas. And those who do so are called hereticos. Heretics. Again, this is hard teaching. But we are not allowed to avoid it because it is in His Word and we're making His way through His Word. Thank you, Jesus, for taking us down this road. Paul deals with a serious case of actual disfellowship in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll get there shortly. Not tonight. Talks about a man who has his father's wife. So that's a little twisted. And in that situation, Paul says, I have handed him over to Satan. Disfellowship him. Have nothing to do with him. That is serious business. And it was a serious, unrepentant sin at that point. What's interesting is you come to 2 Corinthians and Paul addresses it again and says, Oh, and by the way, the man we handed over to Satan, it's time to receive him back into the body. It's time to show love and grace again. He's had enough. Bring him back. Paul's whole intention, and this must always be the case, if you must disengage with someone, the intention must be that the disfellowship or the retraction of fellowship is in hopes that maybe this will be the thing that brings repentance. When nothing else will. So even the disengaging is an act of grace. Situations like this must be walked out that way, first and foremost, with grace. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, brethren, if, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul's warning against those who are doctrinally divisive and scripturally scandalous. And in verse 18, he continues, he says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. (laughs) Their own bellies, literally. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. These are the flatterers, the manipulators, the agenda-driven. These are not servants of Jesus. They are servers of their own bellies. They are feeding themselves. They're waiters on their own waistlines. They're more concerned about their life, their issues, their stuff, than they are about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the distinction he makes. Note that they're slaves, not of our Lord Christ. You know what happens to a slave of our Lord Christ? He doesn't have any rights. He gives up all his rights. I don't have any rights in Jesus, and yet I have greater freedom than anyone outside of Jesus. We give up our rights, we serve Jesus and Jesus only, and when we do that, we love and serve one another in the service of Christ. Paul's so serious about this. He, he told the church, the, the elders there in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, he said, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. John describes these individuals and the reason you turn from them. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. 
how do you recognize this divisive person? How do you see them for who they are? Very simple question. Who are they serving? Are they serving Christ? Or are they serving self? Is the behavior for me? Or is it for Jesus? If it's Jesus-centered, you're going to know immediately. And if it's agenda-driven and selfish, you're going to know that immediately as well. By the way, you know what John calls those self-serving dissenters? Those who went out from us but were really not part of us? He calls them antichrists. That's the picture of the antichrist. Those who are not Christ-like or consider themselves to be another Christ. By the way, that's what antichrist means. It doesn't mean against Christ. It means another Christ. Someone who sets themselves up in the position of Jesus. I'm the Savior. I'm the Messiah. Now, someone might not come right out and say that. But if their desires are self-centered and self-focused, then they are another Christ rather than Jesus-centered. Let me read this to you. Over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter describes this same type of person. A couple more notes on this and we'll move on, but we've got to understand this. He uses very descriptive language here. He says, 2 Peter 2.17, These are springs without water, mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. And I've seen it. It's disgusting. I don't care if it saves me having to clean it up. It's gross, okay? And he says, And a sow or a pig after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Jude puts it this way. Jude 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. You're gathering together in fellowship, in unity, in acceptance. And they're there taking communion with you in the love feast. But they are a reef that you're going to crash into. They will sink unsuspecting believers. They're clouds without water. We get that in the Northwest. That's the worst kind of day around here, isn't it? If you're going to be cloudy, rain. Otherwise it's gray. It's just depressing, man. And that's what this type of person is like. Carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit. Doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom, again, Jude agrees with Peter, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. The Bible is very descriptive about the dissenter, about the heretic. And that's why we turn away. That's why we say, enough! We cannot allow division in the body of Christ. Jesus very simply called them false teachers. 
Again, because they are people who have an agenda other than that of Jesus. And they preach a self-absorbed message rather than just simply teaching God's Word. They are Antichrist. Because they draw away from Christ. So the bottom line is, if they draw away, turn away. If they divide from Jesus, you divide yourself from them. Verse 19. Boy. He says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. That's great. Wise in what is good, innocent is in what is evil. Wise is sophos, and it's where we get our word sophisticated. If you want to be learned, intelligent, knowledgeable, and sophisticated, be sophisticated in the Word of God. He says also, be innocent, akarios, which simply means simple. Be simple regarding evil. Innocent. Like someone shares something that's evil and you go, Really? People do that? I've never even heard of that before. You have no idea what they're talking about. Problem is, a lot of Christians today get these two backwards. We are kind of simple when it comes to good things, but we are sophisticated when it comes to evil. We are well trained, understanding what goes on in the world around us. And we think we need to be, you know. We're going to make sure we understand evil. And if we're truly going to understand evil, we really need to, you know, be around it, read about it, watch it in the theaters, listen to it on our iPhones. We've got to know evil so that we can fight evil. That's dumb. Paul says if you're going to be sophisticated, be sophisticated in what is good. Don't be more streetwise than you are knowledgeable of righteousness. Don't, don't go after worldly things thinking, okay, so that I can be ready when they come. You want to be ready when evil comes? Sophisticated goodness. Focus yourself on knowing what is right and good. How much time, and this is a great question for all of us. I've already had to deal with this with myself this week. How much time do I spend studying evil versus good? In regard to reading, music, web surfing, binge watching, social gaming, personal relationships. My sons, all of my sons are into gaming. They love video games. And we talk about them from time to time. And you know, there are so many just absolutely evil games out there. It's just scary. Ah, but it's just a game. Well, if you're spending hours playing the game and it's evil, guess what? You are studying evil. Are you going to be sophisticated with evil things or are you going to be sophisticated with good things? Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Instead, expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Paul says there's some stuff we shouldn't even be talking about. Most of it is in the headlines every day. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things, you will be sophisticated with that which is good. And Paul says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love the verse. That's one to memorize. 
But isn't it interesting? He says, the God of peace will crush Satan. Now, if I were writing this, and you can all be quite thankful that I wasn't the one who wrote this, I would have said, the Lord of hosts, God of armies, or perhaps even the God of war. He will crush Satan under his feet. He doesn't say that. He says the God of peace. Why? Because peace is the result of Satan being crushed. Because Satan is the God of this world. Satan is about violence and he is about sin and he is about darkness and he is about pain. And when he is ultimately crushed and sin and rebellion is crushed with him, there will be peace like we have never imagined. Man, when we launch into this millennial kingdom that the Bible says is soon coming upon us, Jesus ruling and reigning out of Jerusalem, can you? I can't imagine. I I can guess at it and I think about it, but the peace that will reign over this planet, it will be astounding. By the way, even with all that peace, mankind is still going to find a way to sin. Revelation 20, read it, it's astounding. But Satan will soon be crushed. The sun is coming up. (laughs) The darkness is going down. And Satan will soon be crushed under foot. This is, by the way, a reference to what's called the Proto-Evangelicum, Genesis 3.15, where God, speaking to Satan, said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And truly, at Calvary, Jesus was bruised on the heel. As the nails drove through his feet, you better believe his heels were bruised. Just as God said, 4,000 years prior. But three days later, you know what happened. When Jesus rose from the dead, the devil was put on notice for a future whooping. And he will be crushed. His head will be crushed. Revelation 20 verse 10, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Crushed. And it's going to happen soon. Soon is that cool Greek word in taxi. Think about it being in a taxi. Soon doesn't mean instantaneous. It means when this begins to take place, it will rev up like a tachometer in taxi. It speeds up. And so as the end comes upon us, it's going to move faster and faster. When these things begin to take place, they will unload and it will happen so quickly the world will not even know what hit it. And then Satan will be put down. His head crushed. One other thing on this verse I think is great. He says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He doesn't say under his feet. Oh, he will. But he's going to crush Satan under your feet. We get to get in on the stomping. (laughs) No, what it means, and it is in the second person plural, it is your feet. He's talking about those who put their feet in the footprints of Jesus. And where Jesus' feet go, my feet go. And therefore, if His feet crush Satan, so do mine, because my feet are in line with His. I'm in complete alignment with God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, or verse 11 says, They overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Feet set in the footprints of Jesus. And Satan will be crushed under those feet. He continues and says, the grace 
of our Lord Jesus be with you. And that is conclusion number three. But you know there's more. Paul now is going to send along some more greetings, some final greetings of eight more brothers who are there with him at Corinth. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, which is actually Timotheus in Greek, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipatros, my kinsman. So these greetings come along. Timotheus, Timothy, we know young Pastor Tim. Ultimately, he's going to end up pastoring at the church of Ephesus. Paul is the one who finds him. A young man raised to know Jesus by his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice. Two women who are named for their faithfulness in teaching Jesus to this young man who would have such an impact for the gospel. So along comes Timothy, and now he's with Paul at at Corinth. He's his bright young protege. Paul said this about Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, and I especially say this to you who are younger in faith, let no one look down on your youthfulness. But rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. And that's youthfulness because we believe Timothy was a young man. But I think it also applies to youthfulness in your faith. Sometimes new believers, sometimes new Christians say, I haven't been at this very long, so I really shouldn't say anything. No, say something! Because in your passion and your purity and your new innocence, you have a word to speak. Be bold. Share the gospel. Don't be afraid to. God will tell you what to say. And really all you have to say is, I don't have all the answers to this, but I know Jesus. And I can tell you what He's done to me. So let no one look down on your youthfulness. Timothy didn't. Then, of course, we've got these other three Jewish brothers. Paul calls them his kinsmen. And we talked about this Sunday. Every time Paul says, my kinsmen, he's referring to fellow Jews. Kinsmen in the the line, literally, of Abraham, so not Gentiles, which is why Timothy is set out. He's a Gentile. Lucius, Jason, and Sosipatros are Paul's kinsmen. Lucius means light. This is probably not Luke. Because we're pretty sure Luke was himself a Gentile. This is a Lucius who is a kinsman of Paul. I know you would read that and say, isn't it Lucius? No, it's not. It's Lucius. It's not a Harry Potter character. Jason means healer. Jason is the one in Acts chapter 17 whose house got attacked because he was supporting Paul. And sometimes simply by supporting a brother or sister in faith, your house gets attacked whether spiritually by the enemy or physically. Well, that was Jason. And then there's Sosipatros. And I know it says Sosipater. That's our Englishized version of the name. It's Sosipatros. And it's a fascinating name because it means Savior of His Father. I like that name. In some ways, Hayden is my Sosipatros. Back when Hayden was born, we had Corey and Hannah, and Corey was seven years old, and Hannah was five years old, and Cheryl was working on her master's in social work, and I was a young youth pastor at a large church, and man, we were all, all guns were blazing. We had a future mapped out, we had plans, our kids were getting less and less and less of our time, and then Cheryl finds out she's pregnant, calls me up on a retreat and tells me, and all the breaks went on. And our life stopped. And Hayden Crawford became my Sosipatros. The Savior of his father. Slowing me down and reminding me that family matters. Because I honestly wonder if I wouldn't have cashed in Corey and Hannah for ministry. 
I was just, I, I was headed that way. It was all about the name and, and all about, you know, ambition. The bigger the church, the better, and the little church is well too bad for them. And you know, that's where I was. My little Sosipatros came along. But it's also interesting in terms of this. I wonder how many children have been used by the Lord to save their parents. It does happen. You may have parents who are not believers. Maybe you're the Sosipatros. Do what you can to speak Jesus to mom and to dad. Verse 22. He goes on. He says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, now greet you in the Lord. Tertius. Which name, his name doesn't mean slow. You know, this is not turtle man. His name means literally third. Which is, I guess if you have a lot of children, that makes sense. You know? Third. We just call him third. He's the third one in. <laughs> Hayden is also my Tertius. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, probably Tertius was the third child in his family and therefore gets the Greek name third. He was Paul's amanuensis. I just wanted to use the word. It just means his writer. You know, he's his scribe. He's the one who's now jotting it down. I'm the one who writes this letter. He said, I greet you in the Lord. Paul often would use a writer. And it further supports the notion, as we've talked about when we studied Acts, that Paul suffered loss as a complication of illness when he was down in the lower regions of Pamphylia. Got very, very sick. And after that, all of his letters, he has trouble writing because he cannot see very well. And so he has Tertius writing for him. Now, here's how we know that Paul sent this letter to Rome from Corinth, that he was in Corinth on his last missionary journey when he wrote this. Watch. He says, verse 23, Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. So there in verse 23, more names. We've got Gaius, his name means Lord. Gaius, uh, Paul's host in Corinth. And we, we know that from reading about this. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that Gaius and Crispus were the only two that Paul baptized when he was in Corinth. And we know from the book of Acts that he stayed with Gaius. And so Gaius is his host. Paul is in Corinth as he's writing, Gaius, who is host to me. And note this, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And I like that one. Erastus, his name means beloved. He's the city treasurer of Corinth. Now, why does the Bible tell us that? Because you see, in 1929, a paving stone dug up in the excavations of Corinth had on it the name Erastus the treasurer. So the Bible already told us 2,000 years ago that this Erastus was the city treasurer of Corinth and the stone literally says Erastus in return for his edelship, his treasurership, laid the pavement at his own expense. The Erastus, who is the city treasurer of Corinth, and Paul says it right here. So once again, the Bible just is supported. I love that God waited 1,929 years to reveal that. Why did He do that? Why didn't He just reveal it all right up front? One word. Faith. Faith. He always would prefer that we take Him at His word and not at His proof. Now, he'll provide the proof if we need it. And he does from time to time. Here's the proof. You're out. I know you're struggling. Let me just show you. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> i got to tell this story. And Lori Beth isn't here right now, but I, I don't think she is, is she? 
Good. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Lori Beth was down in, in uh, Portland with her mom, Annie, helping her clean out her house and do some garage sale stuff because Annie's planning on moving up here, which is great. Those of you who met Annie on our trip, wonderful woman, and what a blast. And so she's coming up this way. Well, Lori Beth's down there, and there was so much to do. And Lori Beth said, man, we were, we were freaking out. And she said, my mom was just overwhelmed. There was so much. And how in the world were we even going to get this done to get this garage sale on time? And it was just Annie, uh, Lori Beth, and Bruce. So the heavy lifters really weren't present at this moment. How are we going to do this? Move the furniture? All this stuff. They were worried. And so Lori Beth said, Mom, let's just pray. And let's just pray. And, and she said, my mom... Annie may even hear this, so Annie, with all due respect. Um, my mom, just in tears, said, Lord, why can't I hear you like other people hear you? You've probably prayed that prayer. And she said, Lord, we just, we need help. We need help. And they prayed. And that afternoon, the phone rang, and her son, who hadn't talked to her in a while, how you doing, Mom? Oh, I'm overwhelmed. I'm on my way. And he was there that afternoon. A friend from the church, a young man, stopped by. Just stopped by to see how she was doing and stayed the whole rest of the day to help. And this happened with two or three other people until there was a team of people there helping out. Why didn't God just provide that for Annie in the morning? Faith. Right? Come and ask me. And I'll tell you this, Annie may not have heard God's voice, but he heard hers. And that's really what counts, isn't it? Isn't that what matters? Faith. Trust Him. Just just trust Him. So Erastus, city treasurer, and then the, the, the other young man here, or the other brother, is Quartus. Quartus, whose name means fourth. So we got Tertius and Quartus, and it's possible that Quartus is Tertius' younger brother. Third and fourth. Very creative parents. Can you just imagine at lunchtime, Tertius, Cordus? Hey, where's Protus and your sister <laughs> Deuteros? First, second, third, fourth, inside, you know? Well, I make life a lot easier. In my house, we have Hey David. It'd be a lot easier if, it was, if he was just number six. Hey, number six, sit down. Yeah. Anyway, here's the reality, all kidding aside. Tertius, third. Quartus, fourth. Like Narcissus, were probably slaves. Because a slave name would be a number. You are not worthy of a name. You're just first, second, third, fourth, seventh, eighth. You are a slave. Answer to your number. Kind of like, you know, like Finn. FN2187 from the recent Star Wars. Those of you uh, Star Wars fans out there. Okay. I thought that would fall flat because most of you are like... Finn? Okay, so Finn's a clone in Star Wars. He doesn't have a name. He has a number. FN2187. And he's befriended and his his friend says, What's your name? FN2187. Well, I don't call you that. I'll call you Finn. And then he has a name. He's like, Finn, I like that. Anyway, great movie. You should watch it. I'll leave that to you. (laughs) Numbered. One, two, three, four. You know what? All of our days are numbered. We all are numbered. We have only so much time on this rock. But all it takes in the number of our days is a moment to be saved. 
It doesn't take a lifetime. Oh, I know some people don't come to salvation until they're 65 years old. Some in their 70s. Some find Jesus on their deathbed. Others find Jesus at the age of 13. But you know what? It happens in an instant. That's how big grace is. You can live 115 years and it only takes a moment to be saved for all eternity. Which is why Paul writes in Romans 8.15, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, because in the moment of my salvation, my life extended forever to always be with the Lord. Verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that's the fourth conclusion. You might call it Paul's Cordis conclusion. <laughs> I'm going to use the number four there. Some debate, and you might notice this in your Bibles, that that is in parentheses. It's because some would debate the authenticity of that verse, verse 24. Some say it was never there. Some say scribes added it later. Uh, there's some uh, confusion about that. It's absent from some of the earliest known manuscripts. Bottom line is it really doesn't matter because it's just a restatement of what he said in verse 20 anyway. So he already said it, he's just saying it again, or he didn't say it, it doesn't matter, it's not a contradiction, because these are words that Paul had written. Now, verse 24 may truly be the end of the letter to the Romans. That is the end of Tertius's writing. I believe right now, Paul took hold of the pen. Paul said, all right, you've done your work. Give me the pen. Roll out the parchment. i got to add some stuff here. F.F. Bruce, from a scholarly perspective, said the sender of a letter in antiquity, after dictating most of it, frequently wrote the last few words in his own hands. Such an autograph was Paul's authenticating mark in all of his letters. How do you know that? Galatians 6.11 Paul said, see with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand? Why large letters? Well, probably because of his big, fat, plus 10 power Coke bottle eyeglasses. You know, he couldn't even see what he was writing, so he had to write big. And he does that to the people in Galatia in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. And Paul didn't pen his letters, he dictated his letters, but the last few verses of every letter of Paul, he wrote. And it's his way of proving, of making sure that people know this is coming from Paul, and it would be easy to see, because it'd probably be like three rolls of parchment for him just to say, Amen! You know? Trying to write it because he can't see well. And so here we go, watch this. After the warm salutations, and now the warning of separation... Paul concludes with a wonderful revelation. A wonderful revelation. Again, in big, fat, bold letters. He says, Now to Him who is able to establish you according to My Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Stop there. This is just one sentence. It's one of Paul's classic run-ons. But it's so much that he's placed in this. First of all, we see that there's only one way to be established. To Him who is able to establish you, according to my Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to be established, sterizo in the Greek, is to be set fast. 
to be firm. Like a, a setting of, of a diamond in a, in a gold ring that is solid and sure. To be set fast if you want confidence, if you want assurance and certainty in a very uncertain world. And is this world uncertain? You better believe it is. You want to be established. It only comes through receiving the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And Paul says this over and over and over. And he owns it. Remember? My gospel, Paul says. According to my gospel. It's not because it's the good news about Paul, but it's the good, good news of Paul. It's the good news that happened to Paul. It's the good news of Jesus that Paul preaches. It is my gospel. And I told you, Sunday or last Wednesday, I don't recall, but I told you it should be my gospel. When I share this with someone else, I'm not sharing the gospel according to Paul or Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I'm sharing the gospel according to Rick. Because it's the good news of my life. And that good news is Jesus Christ. So he owns it. This is a truth that has established Paul. And he says it's the truth that will establish you. To him who is able to do this. According, he says now, to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. The revelation. The revelation, gang, is singular because there's only one. I repeat this again. I will repeat this, I'm sure, to my dying day. There is no book of revelations. You won't find it in the Bible. The Bible does not end with the book of revelations. It's the book of Revelation. There's only one. And the first verse of the book of Revelation tells us that. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Period. One revelation. Not a bunch. I'm thankful for that because if he said it was the book of Revelations, then perhaps after Jesus, Mohammed might be a viable candidate. Joseph Smith? Revelations? They just go on and on. No, there's one revelation and his name is Jesus And the book of Revelation, singular, ends in Revelation 19.10. It contains this statement, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is the revelation. And here Paul says it, The revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. The mysterion. I love that. The Greek word mysterion. We took that, put it on the back of t-shirts in our student ministry when we were going through the book of, uh, of Ephesians with our students and talking about the Mysterions. We all had t-shirts, black t-shirts, and in like dark blue writing it said Mysterion. And it was in the Greek lettering. It really looked cool. My friend looked at it and he went, the Mulatinblav? What's the Mulatinblav? No, no, no. It's the Mysterion. It's Greek. And he just called it Mulatinblav from then on out. The mysterion, get this, is something hidden, but it implies revelation. This is not something that can't be figured out. It's something that is kept hidden until the time for it to be revealed. And so the mysterion here, the revelation of Jesus, was spoken of, was prophesied sometimes in dark sayings, Sometimes in sayings difficult to understand when the prophets were speaking it, of of course to us, now that we have the New Testament revealing that which was concealed in the Old Testament, we look back and we see it. It's as plain as day. It's absolutely literal and clear. But when first spoken, some of the things God intentionally did not just spell it out. 
at least in language that could be understood. Like, He would be pierced through for our transgressions? What does that mean? On this side of the cross, we know exactly what it means. It's the literal piercing through of Jesus. But to the the Jewish person reading Isaiah 52, 53, that could mean a lot of things. Well, wait for it. It will be literal. As will, by the way, all of the prophecies of His second coming. It will be literal. But it's something kept hidden, ready to be revealed. Why hide it at all? And he knows faith. Why not just spell it out right away? Faith. God continues to develop in the world, in history, and in your life and mine. He continues to develop faith, which is why we don't have all the answers the day we're born. We have to grow into them. There are things you cannot explain to a five-year-old. You just can't. Who's crying his head off because you won't let him touch the stove. Why won't you let me touch that bright, red, shiny thing? It just looks interesting. I just want to touch it. He doesn't get it. He needs time to mature to understand. And it's the same thing with the mysterion. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But the glory of kings is to search out a matter. You want to be sophisticated like a king? Search out the good of God. Search out the prophecies. Study the Word. Seek to understand all the things that God has laid out. Some of it you're not going to get at first. I don't. I don't just open up the Bible and go, Okay, Romans 16. Bam, 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 bam. Ready to go. So many times I open up and go, Huh? What are you talking about, Paul? And then you study it out. And that which is concealed becomes revealed by His Spirit. It becomes absolutely clear. So study it out. Job chapter 12, verse 22. Job, in the midst of his ashes, says, He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into the light. That's faith. That's faith. Daniel 2.28. Daniel said, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And so the mysterion is a theme that Paul, he's going to return to it often. Get used to it. You're going to see it over and over now over the next few months that we are in the letters of Paul, the mysterion. And now we know, and you will now forever know, what is the mysterion? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. That's the thing that was concealed and not fully understood until Jesus came into the world and embodied the prophecies of the coming Messiah. The mystery was revealed. You come to the end of the mystery novel and it's like, oh, that's it. And it's always so satisfying. If you're one of those morons who reads the last page first so you don't have to wait for it, what is wrong with you? What fun is that? The mysterion is revealed. And it's always, always, always speaking of the revelation of Jesus Christ in a person's life. That is the mysterion. In fact, you know what? Go all the way back to Romans chapter 1. we got time. Let's just do the whole book. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Just listen to how he begins because he's right back to it. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That would be the mysterion, the mystery, the things into which the prophets themselves looked and studied and 
wondering at what time or place the Spirit of Christ within them was revealing that the sufferings of Christ were going to happen. Peter writes that. And he says, these things are, verse 3, concerning His Son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That was when sonship was placed on Jesus, by the way. You realize that? It was in the resurrection that Jesus was called the Son of God. Well, what was He before? Just God. But in the resurrection, He took the place of the firstborn Son. The firstborn among all creation. The first fruits of those who would resurrect from the dead. He's the firstborn Son, referring to the rights and the privileges of a firstborn inheritance-wise. And so He takes that position in the resurrection from the dead, according, Paul writes, to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's it. I mean, in one sentence, Paul opens up the letter to the church at Rome explaining the mysterion. And now, again, back at the very end of the book, flip back there, see how quickly we move through the whole letter. It's marvelous. I just wanted you to see that to remind you Paul begins and he ends with Jesus. And that's the same with me and the same with you. You come to Him in faith, you begin with Jesus. Guess what? You're going to end with Jesus because He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I started with Him and I am going to end with Him. And the mystery of the revelation of Jesus Christ is going to be revealed in me and through me. The mystery of Christ in you. Well, Paul gets into that in the letter to Colossae, and it's marvelous. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, back to the end, verse 26. This revelation, but now is manifested, that is clearly seen, and by the Scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Now get this. God is glorified in this. And here's the point. This is the ultimate purpose, even beyond the purpose of faith. Beyond the purpose of the salvation of humanity. The salvation of people is the purpose of the glorification of God. Right? Have we not talked about that? If there's any one singular purpose of God in creation in breathing life into us, in the entire walk of faith, in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, in the Prophets, it is all for the purpose, ultimately, of glorifying God. That's why it's written. And God is glorified in this, that we come to faith, based on the revelation of Christ Jesus across all time. What Paul has finished here describing for us is the unfolding, page-turning, wonderfully revealed mystery of His righteousness, His grace, and His glory. And Paul says, To Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the Scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. And never forget, that is the point of it all. 
Father, we glorify You. This is a great end. Okay, I, you know, I said on Sunday, Lord, that I wouldn't end the letter the way Paul did. I, I might want to end the last few verses this way because this is awesome. He, boy, he, Father, He pulls it together by Your Spirit. What a fantastic, glorious, supernatural declaration of the revelation of Jesus to the glory of God. And we glorify You, Lord. We read all these words and from the smallest intricate things to the most expansive, we are blown away. You are great and awesome and mighty and glorious. And if we do nothing else tonight, Father, may we walk out of here glorifying Your name. May we drive home Sing in your praises. May we lay our heads on our pillows tonight and perhaps the last word on our lips be glory to our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.